Welcome to the Modern Investing with Side Pocket podcast, where we find some of the brightest minds in investing, entrepreneurship, real estate, tech, and more, and ask them, how do you stay financially ahead of the curve in the dynamic world we live in? But before we start, a quick disclaimer, the content we are discussing through this channel should not be understood or construed as financial advice. Regardless of anything to the contrary, nothing available on or through this channel should be understood as a recommendation to buy or sell securities or constitute financial advice. With that out the way, let's get started. Welcome, everybody. Today, we have Brandon Meyer, the general partner at Level of Ventures. Brandon Meyer, he's a founding VC behind Quake Capital, one of the top 2% early stage VC funds. Brandon Meyer has made over 250 investments, totaling $2.2 billion with five exits so far at a 94% survival rate. So super excited to have you on this call. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Can you tell me a little bit about the kind of investor that you are? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I'm going to start backwards because uh, risk tolerance, <laughs> Being in early stage is obviously super high. I don't really, as much as different groups have tried to develop platforms to, to better predict what a startup success is going to look like, there's too many moving pieces in building a new business, a highly scalable business to really predict some of those things or to do it in a perfect way. So the risk tolerance is obviously high. In terms of approach, the approach becomes even more important because of that high risk tolerance. So for us, especially having worked with so many early stage companies in the accelerator world, I had plenty of time to analyze what worked, what didn't work. So when we approach stuff now, especially when you have so many people creating startups nowadays. It's This is not what it looked like uh, in the 90s, not that I have as much recollection of that, but it's not what they looked like in the two, early 2000s or even in the early 20, 2010s. You have a, a lot of competition out there. So it's important for us to find companies that are in market, that have that initial market validation. Outside of that initial market validation, have they built up a customer pipeline? Can we somewhat validate that or at least find who's in that pipeline and see if we can help add value and push some of those deals across quicker or those relationships across quicker? So for us, it's important that out of the gate, we can add value and they're in a place, a good place in terms of that early growth standpoint where we can add a lot of value and we can help build on that early momentum. So for us, they got to be a market. The team is so important. And I know this is, gets preached up and down by everybody, but you really see why the team is so important in early stage. Cause you want to make sure too, that in the early days when they have such an uphill battle to get everything off the ground, when you're Say you have a SaaS business and you're selling B2B and no one knows who the heck you are yet. There's definitely an uphill battle to stating your case and getting those first paying customers, just similar to raising a fund. The first LPs that you close, is, that's those are the hardest. You're always able to kind of grow momentum from there. So having a solid team, making sure that team is complementary 
uh, to one another, they don't just both do the same thing, is it's extremely important because if they have the right experience, they probably have a customer base to start with, or they have the contacts, they have the relationships to make that easier. And then product market fit, all of these things are extremely important because the product market fit for us, you know, we have to really analyze and look how they set themselves apart from competition to see if this is a very busy space. Are they in a space where like a lot of companies, they might taper off at like 100 to 200 K MRR and start to stabilize. There's a bunch of other pieces I could go on and on about this. We actually have a pretty detailed scoring methodology that we use that helps us really take a granular look at a bunch of intangibles within the business itself. Mm-hmm. And I think because I went so long on that one, I might've forgot about the, the first piece that I was making the third piece. Oh, was, no worries. No worries. It was, what kind of character are you as an investor? Like, what- I feel like and this is not to put anybody in a box. I feel like we are very different than a lot of VCs. The whole value add piece is so important to us. And it's not just like a value add from, hey, we're going to make a couple introductions for you. But we want to make sure when raising money from other people that we're going to do everything to ensure the success of each investment that we make. And Yes, that's impossible to ensure that you're going to hit 100% of these out of the park in a very high risk investment space, but it will never go without trying. We recognize and realize as other members of our team, including myself, have been founders in the past. We know how incredibly difficult it is to navigate this space and to wear various hats and juggle so many things while trying to continue to, to grow the business while making sure that you can do well enough at this uh, early on so that you're able to raise capital, you're able to hire other key talent. But since we work with companies super early on, we know that there's inevitably there are holes to plug and there are pain points that you know, each and every one of these companies are facing at the stage that we get them, no matter how great the founders. And so we just, to me as an investor, it is extremely important to be a good human, to be helpful and and to add value always. Awesome. Yeah. It's really cool that you're actually helping people achieve their dreams and and help people make an impact. And and that's the rewarding side. Yeah. That's a, that's a terrific uh, side of this, knowing that, you know, you can inevitably change people's lives for the better. And when you really see those super passionate founders that will do anything to ensure their company's success, you want those people to succeed. So it's it's an amazing feeling to, to see as these different companies grow because they become, they're like your children. Yeah, definitely. And as far as how you got into investing, I, I saw you were a financial controller at one point. Oh yeah, the... How did you first get into investing? Like, what was that moment where you're like, hey, you know, I kind of like this. Maybe go your first investment that you made before you went full on VC and doing all the amazing stuff you're doing today. So there isn't, um, there isn't anything to kind of backtrack. I will lead in with 
the early days of crypto, just kind of being that initial taste into the big difference between a friend starting a company that isn't going to go raise money. It's a, you know essentially an SMB versus someone who's built a highly scalable company that VCs and angel investors and others are throwing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars at them. So BitInstant was really like the first kind of like eye-opening experience and seeing how startups work, how things move in this space and went on to be a startup founder and CEO and get experience on that side of the table. So the way actually, it was when I was doing that startup, my business partner at the time, who is my business partner on Level Up, we were one of the first companies in NYU's entrepreneurship lab. And it was there through their accelerator program. I actually met one of my partners at Quake and just saw the writing on the wall that that startup was not necessarily going in the direction of this is going to be a crazy big exit. I was able to find someone to replace me as a CEO that early investors signed off on. And the way that Quake uh, came about, there were, there were three of us, and we had another early partner. It's a very, very long story, but uh, essentially one of our partners was a turnaround CEO with multiple exits, IPOs, and foundationally, these are you know kind of three strangers coming together that wanted to put together and build an accelerator program. It was a lot of research, a lot of like learning in the background uh, and early one of the first the first investments that we made if not i think it is the first one i was a judge at princeton's tiger launch princeton's tiger launch is this amazing large or it's since evolved but it was this large competition that had these different regional competitions across the country with 100 plus universities, top teams pitching for a chance to go to Princeton and to be able to pitch for a meeting with the heads of Sequoia and a 25K non-diluted check. It was at the finals. We were, one of my partners and I were uh, there and this ended up being our first investment, but there were all these kids pitching from Harvard, MIT, Penn, like all these amazing schools. And this kid from the University of Iowa gets up there and destroys them. Like, <laughs> I'm a big underdog fan. That's awesome. It, it was incredible. But what he was doing, like where one thing you kind of run into at the collegiate level of innovation is sometimes at the undergrad level, you might be creating companies that, you don't have as much experience in this given vertical and it's, you know, a little bit of a uphill battle. It's not that you can't be successful. This was a kid who had actually created something in ag tech. It's called swine tech. And he grew up on a farm. So he had experienced this firsthand from a very, very, very young age, but there's over $12 billion a year lost in pig farming from the pigs in their infancy being suffocated when a mother sow collapses on their baby and they lose a 
a decent amount of those uh, youngs, and it's a big loss for pig farmers. So they created a belt that tracks the sound waves, gives them a jolt to prop them back up, ensuring that they don't suffocate the young and kill them. And they've been doing extremely well. Um, I think they raised their Series A a couple years ago, but that was a great find because we we did look early on as we were kind of figuring out Quake, we took a very deep look at companies coming out of various universities. Yeah, and probably the fact that that founder had firsthand experience with the problem. Since the age of four. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. You really know that he knows the issue and that's important because then there's a lot of value that comes with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with being opportunistic, but definitely helps with that having a first-hand experience it's, it's always it's nice too sometimes and like ag tech is not a i think we had one ag tech deal so it's not a necessarily like a space that i specialize in one of my partners was well connected in that space but they're a perfect example of a very solid opportunistic deal in a vertical where you don't see stuff like this uh, every day. Mm -hmm. So anytime there's something that pops up that it's intriguing because you don't see it, to me, I, I like taking an even deeper dive to see if there's actually anything there or not. Because it's, it's rare that you see something that's truly unique. Sometimes I think it's like there's something unique, but in the way you communicate what you're up to and maybe the communication is not fully dialed in. And, you know, a lot of times like, like there's like, oh, well, there's a lot of people that do what you do, but there's no one that does it how you do it. And when we come into how do we communicate what we're up to, our marketing message, things like that, it, it, it's easy to just uh, create messaging that's kind of like what everybody else is saying and not clearly communicating what sets you apart, right? And I think that- You just said something extremely important that I I- want to respond to it you, you were saying no one's going to do it exactly the way that you do it and i think that sometimes when founders are extremely protective of companies that often don't even have necessarily a lot of proprietary data especially in their deck to be very gung-ho about not sharing things because yes, theoretically you could share a deck with another fund and they could potentially tell the other company, but they're never going to be able to dissect it in a way or do something the way that you do it. That is always unique to that team or that individual. And sometimes it's, it takes someone such as yourself to really get past the marketing message and really dig in and see if there's something really there that's unique and, and and you share it with them. And then I'm sure that led to great aha moments. And so would you say that that's like a huge part of your strategy today? Because I know since you started Quake, I mean, a, a number of companies you've already invested in over the years and the success that you've gotten, like what, what would you say has been the key? I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but the, the key theme that you learned to stick to, not so much the scorecard, but a little bit higher level than that, that really built the foundation for your thesis today with what you're doing with Level of Ventures. So with every single thing that I do, I I probably overanalyze 
um, everything. But sometimes that ends up and works out as a really good thing for me. And so doing an accelerator first, accelerators are great. Don't get me wrong. Accelerators are great because entrepreneurial education is extremely siloed and entrepreneurial education is very much needed. Any person coming out of university that wasn't focused on that in school or who graduated 10 plus years ago, a lot of people didn't have any sort of entrepreneurial education. So accelerators fill an important gap, but what you end up opening up, one, you grow your portfolio extremely quickly and you don't always get access to the more established founders that have extremely successful track records. There's a lot of companies, if you are coming out of a university and you went through like a university accelerator, even though it's completely different, a lot of times those groups don't want to go through another one. They've figured some stuff out. And there are certain things that are extremely important for companies to focus on. And there are you know, certain things when they go through an accelerator that this is the prime piece that they want, which is usually the, that prime piece is capital. Like the vast majority of founders, whether they've been successful in the past or not, struggle to raise capital in a timely and efficient manner where things like their month over month growth rates and other critical areas of the business don't suffer as a direct result of it. So I wanted to take a lot of the elements of classes that may be applicable or unapplicable, moving people when they're so early in their company that they probably don't need to be moved to a different city for the next three months. There is value in it, but at the same time, basically what I did with Level Up was cut a lot of that fat out and really focus in on ensuring that we create healthier startups at the earliest stages that are much in a much better position after working with us to raise a larger safe round or priced equity round because you can absolutely inch your way through several smaller safe rounds and a company come out three years later that completely takes takes your market share because they raise more capital, they raise it quicker. So there's all these different intangibles that are extremely important, I think, to understand and be aware of. And so I just took a lot out that I did not deem as important of really honing in and unequivocally showing value. So with with Level Up Ventures, right now, I know you're about to launch your early stage venture fund, right? Could you speak a little bit about that? You know, what really makes this round so special to you and how this is going to be run in a way that, that you feel is unique and, and value added? Yeah. So this experience with Level Up, we it's been completely night and day different than what the experience to uh, Quake was. One, we spent a couple of years testing out this thesis. We built out a pretty successful consulting arm where we focus building out great pitch decks for companies from ideation all the way to IPO. We've helped a lot of companies fundraise 
through an accelerated fundraise prep program we built out, which queued into certain elements within the level up thesis. So from the standpoint of this round, it's extremely important. And I think for me, I have a lot more passion in this because it's something that I've built a lot of it and I've gotten to do it with a partner that I've been best friends uh, for over a decade with and the team that we've surrounded, the community that we've built around Level Up before Level Up's even officially launched the fund, which is later next month, mm-hmm. is quite incredible. We have 450 plus venture scouts in 46 states and I think six or eight different countries across the globe as our boots on the ground that send us pretty great deal flow. Uh, and we give them a pretty solid uh, to the point like roadmap on how to do that. We've added other investment partners to make sure that we keep those scouts engaged, that they keep coming back, that they have other avenues where they can build some sort of portfolio because there's a lot of people that are interested in getting into venture and it's not an easy space to get into. Right. Uh, but this this is extremely important to us. Really looking forward to being able to add value in a, in a unique, different way than you might have seen in the past, or a much more aggressive way. Let's put it that way: a much more aggressive way than you've seen in the past. Mm-hmm. Got it. Thanks for sharing that. I, I want to switch gears a little bit and get a little bit more personal. This is the eulogy question that we like to ask. Okay. Not to, again, on on a bright note, at the end of your life, what would you want your eulogy to be? What what would you want to be remembered for? And and who would you want to be remembered as? That's such a great question. Ultimately, I would like to be remembered as a good human. I I look forward to, at at the end of my life, having been able to have a positive effect in hundreds if not thousands of people's uh, lives, whether it's through VC, whether it's through other endeavors that I don't know that I'm going to go through or that I'm going to be involved in. I just want to have a positive effect on people's lives. I think think no matter when I go, I can go peacefully and I can go happy if I know that I've had that positive effect. Thanks for sharing that. And as you look ahead in, 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 you know, 2023, 2024, from an investor perspective, what do you see as the biggest opportunities and risks that, that you're paying attention to that you think our audience of investors should also pay attention to? Okay. That's, that's a very open question. And the reason why I say it's very open, it really, really depends on stage. I think a lot of stuff that we, you're going to see, so we're still in this waiting period in 2023 the carpet wasn't completely pulled from underneath us as some might have thought running into january and there are still question marks around if our economic downturn turns into a recession if our economic downturn turns into a recession or remains an economic downturn Historically speaking, these types of years have been vintage years for early stage companies. Back in 2008, 2009, you saw the emergence of Uber, of Airbnb, of MailChimp, just a plethora of companies. I think the biggest thing to see when 
you're looking at it from the early stage standpoint, and I'll touch base on later stage in a moment, but from mm -hmm. an early stage, stage standpoint, you're not in a place where you're necessarily looking to cut back staff. There's not a whole lot of staff to cut back on. You're either starting at ground zero or you're still starting with point several zero 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 zeros of your serviceable addressable market that you can penetrate. Mm -hmm. So there is a true opportunity for those companies to continue that upward growth momentum. And even if Series A, let's say, is down, I think Cooley did a report and Series A was down 35%. Even if that is down, you're still going to scale above the valuation that you've got in a pre-seed or seed round 98, 99% most likely. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of opportunities from an early stage standpoint in a downward market or recession period to have a lot of success. From the growth stage standpoint, this is where things get a little bit more interesting when valuations are coming down, when these companies are pulling back on 10 to 20% of their staff, when they're making sure that they're not burning as much capital. I don't know this for, for certain, but this is my bet, is very similar to COVID. Um, you're going to have a lot of the growth stage VCs that have made investments in those groups, making sure that they can protect those companies and reserve a certain amount of capital to make sure that they do not have to head into to a down round or that they are going out and potentially doing, you know, revenue-based financing or debt financing. Cause I, I just can't see a group that, you know, let's say invested in a, in a series A and this company is trying to go to series B, but it's, it's down by 50%. They might want them to, to bridge them mm -hmm. during this time. I think you see the most downward effect is on, on the growth side. I think that's where things get scariest. That's where things get scariest as an economy. Like the early stage companies don't have such a substantial effect on jobs. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, they have a bright road ahead. They, they might have some headwinds. People have less money to spend or what have you. But and it's so, so much easier to work with when you're starting at ground zero and you can kind of see all of this stuff in advance. It's so much easier to be mindful of the things that you can't do, the things that you need to be aware of that maybe we need to wait a little bit to hire like a full-time CTO. Maybe we're going to outsource this for the time being. Like you have more room to game plan. It's not trying to pull back the reins entirely. Got it. There was uh, some data in 2022 that, that it was a year when many VC funds decided to hold on to dry powder and waited to see kind of what happens. Do you see LPs pressuring VC funds to deploy their capital uh, this year more aggressively and, and, and uh, the dam breaking finally? I don't. So that's a, that's a hard question to answer. So every fund has a deployment period. But every fund also has that 10-year management period. So it depends where that fund is in its life cycle. It depends what they're relaying to their LPs, who their LPs are, and what stage of investments are they doing. If their growth stage, they 
might be telling them we don't want to face a potential down route on some of these companies that had these overinflated valuations and now they've rocketed back down to a place where we might need to bail them out if need be. We might take a slower approach through, I think, you know, the different kind of quarters and seeing where the market's at to make sure that they make smart moves with their investors' uh, money. That might be a different story if they're in early stage. So I think there's a lot of moving pieces and different varying factors that really help to answer that question because I can't, it's a, it's a low, it's a very loaded question. Right. Yeah. And I, I didn't consider that too. Like even in my just own understanding like that. Yeah, of course, if you're early stage, you don't want to deploy in this environment unless it's the right type, kind of deal. And later stages, may, maybe there might be some pressure um, to, to make some moves. Would, would that be well, early stage too? You could even see like, depending, do certain investors try to take some of these valuations down if companies are running into more walls while they're while they're raising do they drag them along until they're at the point of potentially dying it it'll be interesting to see i feel like the best opportunity just with backed up data to support it is around early stage so it'd be interesting to see i don't know if uh, you're going to have as many pulling back or not and even with the downward turn last year, if you just look at the historical graph of how much capital has gone out the door in each each year, we still deployed about the same in 2020. Oh, wow. We still, like, 2021 was a massive jump. And so taking, a, I think it was like 33 or 35% uh, less capital went out the door. That's why it still shows growth from other previous years. Mm-hmm. Got it. And I know at Level Up, at your Level Up Early Ventures Fund that's coming out in February, you're targeting investors that are also former operators, which is pretty awesome. And, and I'm sure very helpful to portfolio companies. Um, do you have a preference for certain kinds of investors? Yeah. So we look for a plethora of investors, but I'd say the early focus for Level Up to really tie into the value add piece of our thesis where a lot of these investors act as venture partners that are willing and able to work with the companies we invest in. It's a great thing is we have targeted a lot of past operators. We've also started targeting other family offices that might not be like a tie-in to work alongside the company and support, but they can be larger checks. So I think there is a certain balance there because you don't necessarily want to have hundreds and hundreds of LPs. It definitely gets harder to have that very personal relationship. So we've had a balance, I'd say. But the past operators in seeing their different superpowers that they bring to the table, we've been able to fill in a lot of different gaps for any additional pain points that we might see with the companies in terms of what their needs are beyond just the growth and, and capital raise piece. If there's a need for hiring, we have somebody who has an agency and has worked in the space for many years. If there is a need working on customer success, we have an LP who had an, IP, an IPO and that's their big strength. Go to market. So we've been trying to 
fill in as many of these gaps as many of the verticals that we're focused on as uh, humanly possible. And we'll continue to do so as we continue to raise level of fund beyond this first close. Got it. Thank you. And a lot of our audience are investors that maybe consider investing in venture capital. Mm -hmm. Um, could you touch on what makes venture capital an attractive asset class, like when the public markets are this volatile as they are right now? I think when you see the historical returns on a lot of these types of highly scalable businesses, it's definitely a riskier medium, but it's a very attractive medium. There's very few stocks that you're going to get a, a 5 to 10x return on. So it is, it's absolutely a more risky play, but that's kind of where funds also balance stuff out. So you're not just looking for every company to be a potential unicorn or uh, a large IPO. There's, there's definitely a balance uh, there. We have come up with a very unique approach, especially to bridge the gap between the different mediums that uh, investors who haven't invested in this space might be attractive to them. So one of those pieces is we provide faster liquidity rights on companies as they go to a price round, starting at a 5x and beyond return from where we invested to where that price round has gone, whether it's the first price round or the second price round. But our goal is to get every company to a price round within one to three years. There's options where they could potentially liquidate part of their piece in that asset. I think something else that becomes interesting as you might get investors that might not be as risk adverse and they want to test the waters as these companies grow, then they get access to some businesses they might not have access to in a series A or a series B round. Right. So there's always a chance for them to take a deeper position as these companies grow. I see some great benefits for potential LPs that want to test the water into early stage investment or potential investors within your channel that are curious or interested in this space. We'd love to talk to them. I think Level Up has created a very unique community. We are doing and will continue to do several investor-only events and various cities that we've been curating. So we're doing one in San Francisco on February 2nd. We bring a good 75 to 100 family offices onto funds, high net worth individuals, past operators that have exits or IPOs, and investors who've invested in other mediums like real estate and film all into one room, whether they're interested in level up or not. We also like curating great investors where they can push along their own agendas and meet with other like-minded individuals. So I think a lot of things that Level Up is doing presents a very unique opportunity in this early stage space. And we really, really look forward to all the progress that we've made. And we really look forward to launching our fund and making a difference in several founders' lives and really going to bat for our investors. Awesome. And, and to ask you real quick, I mean, we're side pocket and happy to have you aboard and, and your support and what we're doing. 
I wanted to t ask you if you could just touch on a little bit what your thoughts are about what we're doing and, and what makes you so excited to be a part of our journey here. And uh, would love to hear your stance on tactical investing and what we're doing for retail investors. Yeah. Uh, so I think something that's, I've had the pleasure of getting to know Daniel over the, this past year, I've had the pleasure of getting to know some of the members of the side uh, pocket team. I think it's really big that in a very, very tough market and a very, very tough economy that you guys have been able to still show a positive return. And I think one of the great things with side pocket is you have a lot of people that just, you know, they're, they don't need the, they're not looking for the, the shit coin. Um, <laughs> on, on Coinbase and hoping Not for editing you know, that 20, out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and looking for a twenty x return. It's, right. it's maintaining wealth and growing wealth, and you guys make it extremely easy. And, and again, I'll just go back to Daniel's background and experience as a quant, and what you guys have been able to create with Side Pocket and all the progress that you guys have made this past year. It's been amazing to see. So it works. We're extremely excited. I think you guys naturally too, because you are dealing with a larger investment network. Um, there's other exciting things with Side Pocket. There's multiple synergies where it's rare to find a group that also can potentially add value to the investors. Yeah, much further uh, beyond just that, to just the app. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it, it beyond the beyond just the the app, and so it's it's been great to be part of this journey so far. We really look forward to working with Side Pocket a lot more, and we're really excited to be coming into your guys' round. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Brandon. Again, really appreciate you uh, hopping on and joining me today. And I'm would love to have you in here in a few months for an update how things are going. Thanks again, Brandon. All right, have a great one, guys. Talk to you soon, Daniel. Thank you, guys. This podcast is sponsored by SidePocket, the only automated robo-advisor on the market that combines multiple tactical asset allocation investment strategies to generate returns. If you don't have the time to professionally trade and you're tired of being at the whim of the market's ups and downs, consider using SidePocket to automate your investing. SidePocket monitors the markets and automatically rebalances your holdings each month for you to maximize returns while protecting against losses. Losses are not a one-to-one -one relationship. When you lose 50% of your portfolio in a bad quarter, it requires 100% return the next just to break even. That's why SidePocket applies sophisticated quantitative methods, including tactical asset allocation, to systematically minimize these drawdowns and consistently protect and grow your hard-earned savings. To learn more, visit SidePocket.com.